Welcome to The Art of the Impossible, a podcast for the design and manufacturing industry that explores how you can leverage technology, processes, and people to make the impossible possible. I'm Asif Mogul, Senior Industry Manager at Autodesk, and each week I'll be joined by two experts from the design and manufacturing world to discuss their perspectives on the challenges our industry faces and share what they're doing to overcome them. From smart products, mass customization, digitization, supply chain resilience, and the convergence of once diverse industries, this podcast is for anyone that runs a design and manufacturing business who's interested in making things possible. You can subscribe by following us on Apple, Spotify, or via your favorite platform. Hello again, welcome to the podcast. Now, um, Henry Ford uh, is famously quoted for saying about the Model T that um, his customers could have their car in any color they want as long as it was black. And I think that's a really well known and often quoted uh, comment, but maybe what's not so understood is is kind of the why. And I think it's down to two, a couple of reasons. First of all, for, for Ford Motor Company to produce enough cars at a level of quality they had to make some compromises. And so limiting the color choice was definitely uh, an option. And secondly, if it's okay to say this, um, there wasn't a lot of competition around. So I guess Ford Motor Company could get away with it because if people wanted their cars, they'd have to accept that compromise. Now, fast forward to today, the world is really different. We're seeing demand for personalized products. I'm just going through the roof. Um, we're seeing the number of companies that are ready to deliver these kind of levels of personalization also increasing. And in fact, a report by Deloitte last year suggests that one in five consumers are willing to pay a 20% premium for these personalized products. And nearly half of them are prepared to wait longer just to get that thing if it's tailored to their needs. Now, delivering that type of personalization can be a real challenge to the design and manufacturing industry, particularly the SME sector. But as we've heard from the Deloitte report, it's potentially a huge opportunity if we get it right. So to talk about how we can make manufacturing more personal, I'd like to welcome my two guests for today. First of all, Dr. Saeed Talabi, who's a senior lecturer at the Department of Architecture and 3D Design at the University of Huddersfield, and Ram Shankar, who's the founder of Equitas Engineering Limited. So uh, welcome to you both. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Asif. Hello. So Ram, maybe we could just uh, help the listeners kind of understand, you know, what Equitas Engineering does. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, yourself and the company? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Hi, I am a chartered mechanical engineer by qualifications. Um, and Equitas Engineering Limited is the company I founded five years ago. Uh, the intention, uh, the, the, the mission statement, if you will, for the company is to help people excel at what they do. And our vision for the company is a better engineered world. Now, keeping this in mind, the things that we do are we offer services with regards to product development, engineering services, innovation delivery, sustainability, and intelligent manufacturing solutions. These are all interrelated, but kind kind of different to each other. So that's the crux of what we do as a company. Perfect. And uh, Dr. Said, could you tell us a little bit about your work uh, at the department at the University of Huddersfield? Hi. Uh, thank you, Sir, for inviting me again. Um... Uh, I am a senior lecturer in construction project management at the University of Huddersfield at the moment. And probably once this um, broadcast will be published, I'll be 
at the, at the Berman Gump City University because I'm the move, uh, move to go there as again senior lecturer there. Uh, I've been working in construction, construction management. Uh, my research is around uh, construction engineering. Um, and one of my research interests is mass customization and platform design. We establish a task force on uh, mass customization and platform design a year ago, and we received a huge interest from the construction industry. Uh, we had more than 50 companies uh, enrolled for that task force. And we have, you know, working on this topic for uh, for some time. And I look forward to our discussion with you, Andrew. Great. Well, well, welcome both. Thank you so much for giving up your time to have this conversation with us. So let's kind of really just get into it. And, and, and Ram, I kind of like to start with you. We, we, we're hearing all the time <clears throat> um, certain buzzwords and phrases that are being bandied around the industry and in the design and manufacturing sector. Mass customization is, is referenced a lot. Um, from the work that you do with, with you know, clients and customers, what is it that's driving that sort of shift in customer expectations? Why are we becoming so demanding? Uh well, I'm, I'm going to start a little bit on a slightly philosophical note, Asif. We're all surrounded by social media today. You know, you've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, and who knows what will come up in the next 10 minutes by the time we finish this interview. Now, as, as a consequence of this, we all want to belong. The sense of belonging has been a constant throughout humankind. We want to belong to our clusters, our groups, our tribes, whatever you call it. Now, as a paradox... To this, we also want to stand out amongst the people with whom we want to belong. I'm, I'm part of a group, but how am I different in this group? Now, that has manifested itself in, in everything that we use today to the point where I don't want my BMW to be a metallic icy white. I want it to be a Rams Wizard white. So this desire to belong and, and paradoxically the desire to stand out is causing this mass customization to happen. And it's not it's not a new thing. It's been going on. I mean, all of us being uh, living in Britain, we're not strangers to a kebab shop. You go to a kebab shop, Asif and I, you could both go to a kebab shop, both of us, and we could be having the same kebab with its own trimmings. Now, that's a non-functional mass customization. But you have the functional customization wherein the stewards mass and customization. So you have a bunch of mass-produced components all of which can be used in a way in which you want them to create a special product for your own self, like the personalized laptop I'm, I'm, I'm using to talk to you today, or the car that's in my drive that's sitting, which is a functional mass customization. So it's more to do with the human desire for us to have things exclusively made for us is what is driving this thing. And it's nothing new. I'm really hoping that uh, Ram's Wizard White is actually a real color that I can go and have a look at in my showroom. Um, so, you know, a really strong sense of um, it's just human nature, this, this kind of need for um, wanting to feel like we're part of something, but maybe in a unique way that's very meaningful to us. Uh, and, and that's you know probably a clear indication of certainly what's driving this trend in the design and manufacturing sector. But um, Dr. Saeed, it isn't just the manufacturing industry that seems to be you know bitten by the mass customization buzz. I mean, you work in a, a complementary industry, sort of the, the architecture and the construction world. Can you give us some examples of how this is showing up in the world that you work in? Yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, it's very interesting that Ram uh, on this conversation between uh, all of us, particularly Ram from manufacturing um, background. Look, um, I know that mass customization has been in manufacturing 
you know, since 80s, but in construction is slightly new. We are talking about 20, 30 years. And, um, you know, when it was very interesting that you mentioned about the T model of Henry Ford, because our argument in construction is that we shouldn't only look at T model, but we should also look at the value generation perspective. So we have a theory called TFV, transformation, flow, and value. So we also think, think that how we can deliver the value to the customer. So in, in construction, there has been you know, some programs around the world, particularly developing countries, about how we can you know, um, provide like social houses, like houses with, with lower uh, or lower cost because of the uh, housing shortage. Initially, most of those programs have used mass production ideas, which means repetition and standardization, right? But there is the, to reduce the cost, obviously. But there was a problem there. There was a problem that the customers weren't happy. They weren't satisfied with that, right? So there was a need to potentially that we could adopt mass customization from the industry that Ron is working in manufacturing. So we try to adopt those concepts and see like how we can actually increase the value of housing by delivering products that fulfill specific requirements of different customers and they are not only standard components. So mass, customi mass customization as a strategy emerged in the uh, you know, construction industry and, you know, we have been working and the idea of, of course, our idea is that reaching a large number of customers, right, like in mass production, but giving them an individual treatment, like mass, like craft production. So that, that's something that we are trying to do. And particularly, we, you know, we have been successful to implement that in off-site construction, which is very close to, um, manufacturing to some extent. And that's really interesting. You, you kind of mentioned um, the word value there, Dr. Saeed, and, and um, it's kind of made me think that um, I guess many people's perceptions of mass customization is it's limited to the physical dimensions. You know, I can have a pair of jeans that fit me or a pair of trainers that fit me. I can have a, a, a phone that literally fits my hand. It seems to be and then maybe the colors. Um, it seems to be limited to the physical and stuff that you could see. But but I guess there's more ways. If, if mass customization is really about delivering, um, I wrote down, value in a personalized way to an individual, there must be more ways than just the physical aspects of it. Um, Ram, I mean, you, you get to work with a lot of kind of smart uh, products and, and helping companies to develop products. What are the, some of the other ways that people are um, helping deliver value in a very personalized way? Um, thinking of, you know, software or intelligent systems uh, combined with products? Yeah, thank you, Asif. So value, again, value, the way I'm seeing it, is not an absolute entity. It's based on the perception or the perceived importance of what something can do to alleviate a problem or help status quo. And value is not driven or tied to a product itself, but to the solution a product can offer. Now, take, for example, back scratcher. If you have long hands, you don't need a back scratcher. So the product, as the back scratcher, the product is not giving you any value if you have long hands. So the value is in the solution provided, um, first of all. Secondly, when we look at things, when, for example, at the moment, I am holding a valve in my hands, which a lot of people cannot see right now. 
But this valve was developed by us uh, in response to a call from a client in the Netherlands to help prevent death by choking. Now, no electronics, it's all pure fluid mechanics, and based on whether the pressure in your lungs goes up or down, the valve will open one way or the other to let air in or out. Now, the really intelligent bit inside the valve is a spring, a combination of springs, which work on a certain value of the pressure in the human lungs. Now, all I need to do to mass customize this is simply change the rate of the spring and the valve will work for a different pressure rate, which a different doctor may want in a different hospital. So this, what I call, is a functional mass customization. There's the aesthetics one where you combine your white trainers with rainbow colored laces, but this is more of a functional mass customization where by simply changing the springs inside the valve assembly, I can make the valve work for a different range of pressures in the human lungs. Similarly, all of us have computers. It's the same Intel chip, it's the same RAM chips, it's the same set of hard drives, but I can pick a combination of an i7 with a 32 GB RAM and a one terabyte hard drive, which are all mass produced components, bring them together, assemble them in a certain way, and then enhance its functionality by asking for a 64-bit operating system or Windows or Linux or whatever. So that's again a functional mass customization uh, in, in, in the software or in the computer industry. Uh, one more example, Airbus and Boeing mass well, kind of mass manufacture their aircrafts, but they tailor the interiors of the aircrafts based on various customer requirements. That again is a mass customization, but we, it isn't obvious to us, but that's again a mass customization carried out by Boeing and Airbus to cater to their various clients. And the functionality will also depend on what each customer wants to provide to their passengers, what airlines want to provide to their passengers. So there's various things happening in the mass customization world uh, in the field of manufacturing. I think in, in my mind, I'm building a really kind of nice, almost like a, not a Wikipedia uh, definition, but um, a broader definition of mass customization, which seems to be about the combination of different aspects of, of, a, of a thing, right? Could be, as, as Ram, as you said, the aesthetic or the functional, um, there could be um, just physical materials, there could be software. It seems to be this combination of different bits to deliver unique value to solve a specific problem for more, more of an individual basis. And so, you know, it's hardly any wonder that people are going crazy for it. And, and I think if you can get it right, um, we, we are seeing some examples of companies that seem to be really you know, in that spot and, and kind of maximizing their potential. Um, so I'm just wondering if, what examples have we got of companies that are really doing it well? So Dr. Saeed, from, from, from the work that you do, um, who in the sort of architectural construction world do you think is really getting mass customization, you know, really right on the, on the nail? I think the you know, the, the, the question that you ask was absolutely spot on, that mass customization is not about only physical configuration of different elements. It's, it's more beyond that, uh, to, our, to my understanding. So initially, when we adopted mass customization in construction, we were thinking that how we can increase our, you know, cap you know capabilities to produce variety of uh, products, variety of, you know, uh, architecture drawings at low cost, but now 
our focus is a like broader and we emphasize on supply chain coordination and customer involvement in the process of designing, producing, and delivering mass customized products and services. So it is really behind that physical aspects and it is more leaning towards value perspective. So in terms of what exactly companies are doing, there are different level of uh, proficiency and adoption of mass customization. Some of them are just at the beginning, for example, cosmetic level, but there are some more, um, some of them are more advanced. But I can see, for example, you know, just give you an example. Some companies, construction companies now have moved towards using choice menu design. Perhaps it is very common term in, in, in you know, manufacturing, like when you want to order a car like a new, like BMW, you have your uh, different colors, different, you know, I don't know, different, you know, engines, different things. We also try, this is still an unexplored function in construction, but we are trying to, you know, use that, that actually, you know, choice menu. It is also known as interaction system, as you know, or configurator, which is used for guiding the user through the customization pro process. And we want to really reduce the burden of choices from customer's perspective, because we don't want to provide the customer really with a huge number of options and choices, because that can actually confuse the customer. We don't want to go through that route. We just want to give, we want to see what, how we can deliver the maximum value to the customer by having, for example, four types of living room or four types of bedrooms, and then give them like a few choices. So I can see now, for example, in uh, in the UK and in Brazil and uh, Sweden, there are, you know, very good companies that are adopting that sort of, you know, they have those, you know, websites. And, and the other, the other uh, best practice or good practice I can, uh, I can say is that um, there is a recent launch application called um, Seismic, uh, which has been funded by Innovate UK. And its main purpose is that, okay, look, we have, um, you know, uh, very common spaces in, in schools. So rather than designing everything from the beginning, let's uh, you know, use the solution space, which means that we give like few options to the to the to the to the designer about like spaces that we need in in school, and then designer can easily adjust them next to each other based on some embedded rules in the application, such as the frequency that we need, the connections, the adjacency, and all those rules. And that application has been. Has been has been being developed, and we are also working, you know, with, with our partners on using machine learning about what sort of standard design we get for healthcare, for example, like hospitals. Do we have to design from the beginning? No, we can just, you know, see what are the common spaces, adjacencies, frequencies, and then the machine can at least do the um, provide the design based on those. Uh, um, standardized platforms that we give it, we give to the machine. It, it, again, it's really fascinating the sort of the parallels between the two sectors. And we do often talk about the convergence of manufacturing and construction and uh, lessons that can be learned from each. But 
you know, the similar trends are impacting both industries. And whilst you know one might be slightly ahead of the you know in terms of the maturity in, in, than the other, I think that's kind of moving towards this kind of one place of um, combining physical, operational, and other characteristics of your solution. Not now, not even a product, your solution. Understanding the value that solution delivers, and then de- deciding how you can deliver that value in more specific, meaningful ways. And so it, in fact, it feels like it needs a bit of a mindset shift in terms of our own thinking. Um, and so, Ram, you know, c- coming back to you, and I know you work with a lot of kind of like uh, SMEs um, uh, as part of the work at Equitas. Um, how how ready and willing, uh, or willing and able, do you think uh, our industry, particularly the SME, is? to start thinking in this way? Or, or do you think we're, we're still sort of pigeonholed in a physical mass customization or functional? Not only are they willing, Asif, um, some of them are actually doing it. Have you got some examples of, of, of people you could reference that, that you think are really doing it well? There are people, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the name of one company, which you may like actually. A lot of people I've seen are using this technology called generative design, which is part of uh, Fusion 360, which is an Autodesk product, which which is taking the old concepts of product design, bundling it all up and throwing it out of the window. And it's making the design more AI driven. You know, we talk about digital. It's taking the design driven by AI, driven by digital, but with real applications in a physical world. And I've seen companies uh, who have Adapted it, adapted to this like fish to water. I mean, we've done some work with generative design. We're developing components for bicycles and and and, and other sorts of transportation. Uh, and and the key is the, the thing that people often need to remember is the whole mass customization revolves around the basic functionality and technical integrity of the product which brings us back to the other uh, phrase which everyone's talking about, the minimum viable product, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, more often than not, viable being in the middle kind of gets the middle child treatment. People seem to forget the viable bit and people only focus on the minimum and the product. But viable is, is by far the most important bit. So you cannot do mass customization without having a product that meets the minimum requirements and that's viable to provide the solution that it tends to. And, and for example, you everyone's seen that famous image of you know going from a scooter to bicycle to motorcycle to car. That's not how you do a minimum viable product. A better way to do a minimum viable product is an economy seat, a premium economy seat, a business class seat, a first class seat, and then whatever adds on top of that. Because at every stage of its development, the product has to be minimum, it has to be viable, as in it must meet a minimum set of requirements in terms of functionality and integrity and all that, and it has to be viable, which means it has to gain acceptance in people. Otherwise, what's mm. the point in mm. creating a product? And then comes your mass customization around that, which enhances the value, the perceived value of what you're providing. Does it make sense so far? Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 totally. So there's a sort of sense of this kind of like, a, um, maybe this is the wrong word, but like a baseline that you know will tick tick all the boxes to a certain level, and then adding on top of that baseline, um, almost like you know baking a cake. You have the same base, and then you you know not that I've been watching <laughs> Great British Bake Off or anything like that, but um, you can put different toppings on it depending on the taste and the flavour and what your kind of market needs. Um, so it it sounds like that might be quite a stretch for for some organisations to to kind of r- really understand. But but if there are people doing it. Um, it 
you know, Dr. Zaid, it surely can't be a really straightforward process. I mean, there must be some things that, you know, SMEs sort of struggle with or, or, or find difficult as they start their journey to uh, mass customization. Um, what are some of the most common things that you find people, you know, struggle with when they're trying to adopt this way of working? Last year in November, the government put a call that um, we want to use platform design. Sorry, two years ago, two years ago in November 2018, um, that we want to use platform design in construction, which means that, okay, if I'm using one component in hospital, in one hospital, I want to use the same, I want to be able to use the same component in another hospital. To you know, to reduce the manufacturers, to reduce the you know per procurement uh, you know process, all those things. So the the ambitions of the government was to reduce around thirty percent of construction costs. But as we can imagine, platform design, which is associated with the standardization, got a very negative feedback because. Like, again, we are going through the reputation, standardization, and we're going to get, you know, the same spaces. And that's not good from the client perspective and the customer perspective. So um, then we said, okay, we can, we can mix this uh, platform design with mass customization. So we can provide a variety of platforms to the end user to choose. But surprisingly, none of the tier one contractors were willing to adopt this concept. So at the moment, there are some offsite, you know, companies working offsite construction that they are doing, you know, this concept of mass customization, platform design, but there is, there, it seems there is a hesitant to say that we are doing. But well, why do you think that, that, that you know, there that, that is that sort of reluctance or hesitancy? What, what do you think is behind that? Because, because they think customized, mass customization, platform design, um, which means that they are, we are moving towards um, standard designs, and it means that there will be less work for them in future. Because, because the same thing can be done by the generative design, for example, the software, there is no need for architects, designers, or we are using same products, so there would be the need for less manufacturers, contractors, there would be less need for, so the industry seems to you know, think that if you move towards that route, it means less job in future. So in a similar kind of uh, argument that um, we hear a lot about uh, um, automation and robots, you know, will we'll, we'll take the jobs of human beings, which some people believe and some people um, think it's not true. It sounds like it's a similar kind of concern about um, if we automate the production of these kind of variations of products, then there'll be less actual work for, for, for human beings. Would you say that's true, Ram? I, I mean, you know, we, we have so many examples and the one that's always quoted is what desktop publishing did to the printing industry, it decimated the traditional market, but now they're the printing, the DTP businesses, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars in a global industry. But but you think that the level of automation as applied to mass customization will threaten jobs, or will, or will it create more opportunity than, than it sort of destroys? Wow. Okay. You you didn't put me in the spot there at all. Thank you, Asif. Uh, <laughs> um, right. I'm going to use um, a movie culture reference. Now, the problem that I see in in the sector when we talk about the industry four or the digitization is depending on whom you're talking to. 
um, the future is painted in, in a very dystopian manner. If you talk to the robotics people, it's Terminator. You know, robots are going to steal your jobs. If you talk to the people with AR and VR, it's a combination of, you know, Inception and Matrix. You know, what's reality, what's not. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a dog's dinner. But the, the real heart of the matter is, the way I look at it is digitalization or the digital technologies is a natural evolution of the industry driven by technology as was the previous three industrial revolutions. You know, we started with water and steam, along came electricity, we quickly adapted electricity to drive our mills, and then came the CNC. And now we are basically banking on the power of data and, 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 and what computers can do. And the common trait throughout the history of the industrial revolutions has been taking the best of what technology can do at a given state of time, combine it with what people are good at, which is, you know, intuition, instinct, uh, a sense of ethics and moral responsibility and being decisive. And when you combine these two is when you get the maximum from any industrial revolution. Now, there's a difference between jobs going and job titles going. The way I see it, job titles will go, but the jobs will be different. People will still have jobs, but their job titles will go away. And which brings me back to the skills thing, you know, Everyone's talking about skills, and which is why I feel I also need to talk about skills in this forum because it'll be an incomplete conversation. You know, now the, the problem with skills is people again are, we're all focused on the technical on-the-job skills that we need, but that's going to change. I don't know you. I don't know what skills I'll be needing in five years' time, but I know one thing for certain: if we teach people resilience, critical thinking problem solving, these what I call as life skills, then you enable and empower them to go out and find out what they will need in terms of on-the-job hands-on skills, and they will train themselves and adapt themselves to the need of the industry. So the focus for us has to be on resilience, critical thinking, problem solving, and all these things that form the foundation or the bedrock for further skill development. That's, that's my take on the matter. So, so there's a sense of our roles and uh, the nature of our work. It will be disrupted, but but there's disruption through an evolution in terms of you know. Let's take the like a mechanical engineer uh, student who's just graduated. Um, today they come out with a sort of a certain set of like knowledge and skills and expertise that they've been taught. But in the future, uh, what they need to learn and need to know is going to evolve. Uh, so this kind of, and I think that the same thing will probably apply to existing jobs that you might find across any sort of design and manufacturing company. Um, Dr. Saeed, what kind of, what's your view on that? Is it more of a, a disruption or an evolution or, a, you know, where do you think it lies on that spectrum? Well, um, there is a huge focus at the moment uh, in the construction industry on digitalization, automation. Um, and it seems that the future is around that. So, there is, you know, there is no other choice than moving towards digitalization <laughs> or just lose a job. And I'm saying, you know, in academia, it's the same thing. You know, our research used to be, for example, on uh, theory or more conceptual frameworks, but nowadays it's right, you know, everything should be around uh, digitalization. Um, otherwise, our research is not interesting uh, unless it's less likely that we get you know, research funding. So it is, it is very important. I, I do agree with Rom that the job titles change. The, um, you know, for us, the, the, the fact is that 
we need to be focused on how we can apply, get the ideas from manufacturing, get the ideas from, you know, how we can digitalize the processes in construction. And, but also there's another threat that in few years time, there wouldn't be any need for civil engineer or quantity surveyor or project manager because, for example, electric engineers can replace us. So that's another like a theme of you know school of thought in, in construction at the moment. That you know how we can avoid that, how we can still like say, right, we need those skills. Uh, maybe that's again related to resilience that Ram said. I don't know. That's that's ongoing debate. That how we can secure those, you know, field like quantity surveyor, project manager in future, and we wouldn't be replaced by people from manufacturing or people from uh, other engineering uh, departments. Yeah, can I just add on to that, please, if it's okay, to uh, what uh, Saeed just said. You know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, Barcelona, the football club, pioneered a concept called total football, which meant any of the 10 outfield players could play anywhere on the pitch. Now, let's take that logic and apply it into our industries, both manufacturing and construction, which means we become, rather than task-driven, we become results-driven, which means any person within the team or the organization can pick up a particular job and run with it with a reasonable proficiency. And what will happen as a consequence? Well, it'll first of all, it will require a massive shift in culture with, within the industries. And what will happen then? It will basically eliminate phrases like, that's not my job, that's how we do things. Once... Once you get this shift in culture wherein any of the outfield players can pick up a job and run with it, and when you become results-driven, you work within the framework of the company's mission, vision, and value so that you still stay on the ethical side and the spirit of the law, but people will take it as a collective accountability to get the job done and, and move projects forward and deliver what they should be delivering rather than, you know, oh, these are my tasks, this is what I'll do. That's what will happen when we talk about changing job titles and job roles, but jobs remaining. Do you come across organizations, uh, this is a question to both of you really, but um, do you come across organizations that you think they're just not gonna make the shift or change or the mindset? Because it feels it feels like the best place to start is make a mindset shift, make a commitment to do something, and then start ad adapting some of these principles that you've both been talking about. But do you come across organizations that you think they're not going to do it? And what's the future for those kind of organizations? Dr. Said, let's start with you. Well, it's been always difficult to change the culture. And that's one of the main issues that, you know, particularly we are facing construction because there's too much resistance to move, to move towards new ideas like mass customization, platform design, lean construction. and But recently, the industry construction industry has seen benefits of adopting new philosophies. Um, and, and, you know, because it is hard to prove from the monetary perspective that, look, this is, this is going to give you benefit, profit, if you adopt those ideas. So there has been a huge, you know, work on changing the industry's uh, mindset, mindset towards new ideas, more novel ideas, and recently, there has been a good progress. Uh, we are moving towards those ideas. Particularly, there has been a very good collaboration with the construction industry 
and the academic academia. So we are doing a lot of you know research together, research projects, research projects that are more focused on the industry and and you know short you know delivering short benefits to the to the industry. And um, so so that has been a good progress. But I would say that um, as you said, cultural change is a big barrier for any for any improvement and that is why maybe construction industry when you look for example for productivity in construction industry it hasn't changed since 30 years ago and so the culture seems to be holding us back certainly from what you're saying in the construction industry um rob earlier on you were saying that um that you felt that the manufacturing sector is, is certainly more willing and actually doing this kind of stuff but but for those people that you know aren't embracing that change what, what do you think the future for, the, for those kind of organizations is okay I, i'm trying to find a a nice way pleasant way to put it across but i'm struggling to do that so apologies (laughs) for my choice of words in advance uh it's basically going to be charles darwin all over again adapt or perish for lack of a better phrase because if it's a bit like you know the, the the anecdote about frogs in boiling water you stick them in water and they're fine and you start heating the water up they think it's going to be fine it's going to be fine until they basically boil to death I'm afraid, I'm really worried that it might happen to some companies who really do not see how this is going to happen. But then again, you can't simply point fingers at the industry and say you guys need to change. If you look at, for example, the construction industry or even some of the more security onerous, highly regulated industries, they're all driven by regulation. They're all driven by standards and codes and all of that. And they have to comply with what it says on the standard or code. If not, their products will not gain acceptance. So it needs a collective effort from industry, the bodies, and the government to come together and decide on a framework for future growth. So the bodies and the government can say, right, we can, we are willing to be flexible to a certain extent with regards to the standards and codes that govern your sector. In return, how are you going to show us? You're going to adapt to the new ways of working. It requires collective dialogue from the three parties to, and, and of course, Big companies like, like for example, Autodesks and the Siemens and the Kuka Robotics of the world to, to be enablers uh, in, in this journey to, to make things happen. And that brings me really nicely to sort of the, the last uh, a big question I want to ask you, uh, uh, really, is imagine I'm listening to this podcast uh, and I've, I'm thinking about starting my journey to mass customization. I run a design and manufacturing business. I'm the MD, so I have total authority and control of the strategy and direction. So, Ram, What's the first thing you would advise me to do to get on my road to mass customization? You need to know uh, is why do you want to do it? There can be two motivations. Motivation number one, everyone's doing it. Therefore, we want to do it. Motivation number two, we genuinely see the value we can increase to the customers. And we can also see that the value the customers bring to us, both of these things going up. Therefore, we want to do it. So the first and foremost step is a critical examination of why anybody wants to do it. And if they can answer positively to the second bit about the why, about the values, the mutual values between them and the customers going up, that's when you take the next step. If you're doing it because everyone is doing it, just don't bother with it. Yeah. And that sounds really similar to um, a conversation that we have a lot with customers who are just, they're just 
doing technology for technology's sake. You know, they buy a robot or they buy a 3D printer because because everybody's doing it and I feel I need it. But but they don't really ask that very fundamental question, why? Um, so so that's, that's a great bit of advice. And then if the why is successful uh, in terms of, you know, it makes good business sense, good sense all around, then yeah, make an investment. Um, so, so to say, you know, where would you advise um, companies in the construction industry or even the design and manufacturing industry? Where could they go to get the support they need? Where are some of the places they could go to say, oh, I'm struggling with this. I'm kind of a lonely MD. It's really, it's a really lonely business running a, a, a company. Where can I go and find people to help me with this? That's a very good question. So for us, uh, it's about really research, a fundamental push to the industry rather than commercialization. So as an academic, I'm very much interested to work with, you know, with companies through the, the, through the task force that we have established on mass customization platform design, run some case studies, do some uh, knowledge transfer, you know, um, KTPs or knowledge transfer partnership between the industry and academia. So we can get PhD students to, or we can get KTP associates to go and work, you know, be, uh, you know, work with the company, show them the best or good practice in mass customization, teach them what are the options in mass customization, what have been the good practice, what are the philosophy, what are the theories behind that, and and then you know for us would be more publications, uh, would be more research, and then. More importantly, more justification that why this why do we need mass customization? So, and then you know that would be a starting point for us and companies who are interested to focus on this topic. Doctor Said, you 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 were talking about um, picking a project and giving it a go, and maybe reaching out to universities and partnering with them. Um, Ram, what, what would your advice be on actually getting? actual help to start your journey to mass customization first thing to do like i told earlier is to start with your why and and if you're trying to get a better hold on the why perhaps talk to a, a third party neutral expert like ourselves or neutral entity like ourselves who can come and help you clarify the why to begin with and then perhaps create a, a journey for yourselves with what needs to be done how you go about doing it and then prepare a plan with distinctive actions and timelines with who does what by when and what benefits you will reap at the end of it. We're happy to work with people who want to kind of get onto this journey. And we have enough support with the industry, uh, from the industry to do this. Fantastic. So so listen, th- th- there we have it. Mass customization. It doesn't seem to be about creating bespoke products. It seems to be more about the solution and um, the levels of value that that solution, or as Ram called it earlier, this is the, the minimum viable, with no, let's emphasize the viable, the minimum viable product can deliver. To deliver it to customers, it seems to be critical that we understand the physical, the operational, and the other characteristics of the solution that you're offering. And figure out how you could combine those in kind of uniquely meaningful ways to, to deliver that sort of personalized value. And... Um, having a very clear understanding of why you want to mass customize as opposed to I should. Um, maybe some of the best places to start are sit down with your team and say, well, why should we do this? What, what, what could the world look like for us if we did adopt some of this kind of thinking? 
And then and from what Dr. Said was saying is, well, pick a project and say maybe connect your university and kind of give it a go and, and share the results. So I, that's kind of like the distilled learning that I've got in my head uh, from the session today. And as always, we, we really hope that some of the things that you've heard from our guests are kind of inspiring you to kind of ask those questions. Why? And, and maybe just give it a go. So um, I'd like to really thank both of my guests, uh, Dr. Saeed Talebi and Ram Shankar. Um, thank you so much for uh, a great discussion. Thank you, Asif. Thank you for having me today. Thank you very much, Asif, for having me today. Great. And I'd like to thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.